0: This week on Excelsior Journeys, we're going to hear the Excelsior Journey of Mr. Stephen Barker, a young man who wants nothing more than to provide a good life for his wife and child by being a part of the last remaining sport in America, the GCL, the Gladiatorial Combat League. That's right. We're going to be hearing the first chapter of From Parts Unknown, my own science fiction sports five-part serial. Really hope you enjoy it. JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Saroy. Thank you so much for being here. It's been over 90 episodes so far, and we are getting so close to that landmark 100th episode, and believe me, we are not stopping anytime soon. There's so much more on the horizon for this show. And if you've been enjoying this show so far, please make sure to share it. You can find the links for all of the different platforms at hesgotit.com/podcasts. There, you'll be able to also send a uh, rate and review over on Apple Podcasts, which are always appreciated and really, really help with getting more attention to this show. And you can also click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you're looking to support the show in any other means. That is always very much appreciated as well. For this week's episode, I wanted to take some time to introduce to all of you my Five-part science fiction sports serial from Parts Unknown. Not much has been said about this. At the same time, it's a story that I'm really, really proud of. And it's gone through quite a few iterations in its time. It's been over 25 years that this story has been in existence somehow. Um, I would say it's almost 25 years that the initial concept has been written out. But the idea has been with me for quite some time before that. Um, It was back in 1995 when I was walking around on Amsterdam Avenue uh, in New York City during my freshman year of college. I had just finished watching an episode of Wrestling Challenge. I had been a wrestling fan for most of my life, really. And this particular episode, for some reason, as I was walking down Amsterdam Avenue, I was thinking, what would it be like if These over-the-top scenarios that are happening in wrestling, all these over-the-top characters, um, what if all of that was happening in real life? What if that was part of their day-to-day life? And what if the matches that they had were were not predetermined? What would it be like if whatever storyline they were working on, it had to be settled in the ring and it was going to go this way if this person wins or it was going to go this way if this person wins? And more ideas just kept on coming and coming and coming, and and it got to a point where I f- realized that I kind of had something, and I basically introduced this character that would um that would become like a an amalgam of both Undertaker and Kane, uh, because he would wear a mask. He's someone who was a regular person who wanted to do right by his family, and he winds up being injected with this formula that basically kind of turns him into this monster of a human being. And he basically tears his way through the ranks of the quote-unquote good guys while being controlled by the main bad guy, the heel. And he finally reaches the pinnacle of where he was trying to go. He wins the championship. He passes it on to the guy who's been controlling him. And... Just as he's about to deliver the killing blow to the champion he looks out in the stands he sees his wife that triggers a memory he turns on his on his creators and basically just has to uh, go back down to the bottom and work his way up on the other side so it became an idea that would be a video game proposal that was the idea so it would he would start off you know like uh, just going from one character to another it was a fighting game obviously and once he was done he beats the champion and when it when he makes that turn and all of a sudden he's a good guy now then he starts back down at the bottom and works his way up all the way to the champion the guy that he handed the belt off to and so that was that was basically what it was going to be it was just going to be a video game concept and then in uh 1998 1999 or so That was when I got the idea of like, well, let's see how it looks as a treatment to a story, to a script. And so I wrote the treatment and it came out pretty good. Then it was, let's see how it is as a script. And I wrote, must have been about like 10 different drafts and characters were introduced and then pulled back. Um, It was going to go in one direction, then it was going to go another. There was this uh, spiritual Entity that was a former Roman gladiator that came into the picture and he would be like manifested in um, as a as a real human in this time and a lot of different ideas, a a lot of different things that were coming and going with it. And in 2000, I actually entered the version of the script that I had at that point to the New York International Independent Film and Video Festival and it got in. And so I had my own table there with you know copies of a script of that particular version, and some different producers would come through and everything and they would you know leave their business cards, they would ask for more information, et cetera, et cetera um and some of them would even you know get take a copy of the script and kind of look through it and it was a really interesting time and and it got enough um they, the uh, the the company, the festival wound up coming up with their own uh this a whole different category just so that way they can give me some sort of certificate saying that I had won an award. So they called it best futuristic drama. And by default, it was because I was the only one who was the futuristic drama. Everyone else's, they're all, you know, comedies or dramas or whatever that were all just set in normal time. Then it, you know, just kind of picked at it a little bit more. And then finally in 2001, I decided it's time to do the novelization. That seems to be like the best possible way for it to get some sort of attention. And so for over a year, I had turned that screenplay into what would eventually be like a 230 something page book. And I thought that I was going to send it out to publishers and see about getting some sort of attention there i showed it to an acquaintance at the time who was also an agent and he suggested that i self publish but not because of um not because of the quality of it but it was a very very niche market and i understood that it was you know like it was very much like it was wrestling it was it was futuristic it w- had a comic book style characters like it was all you know like it was it was all in in one spot that really just hadn't been getting very much attention at that time. And so I saw a deal from iUniverse. Now granted, this is 2002 that I'm talking about. This is not the time when uh when the Kindle was out. You know, the Kindle would still be like over another 5 years before it would come out. And the whole playing field in self-publishing would be changed. Back at this point, self-publishing was you getting a phone call at 2 a.m. from Ex Libris, and getting one of their packages of like over a thousand dollars, where they would send you printed copy, printed copies, overpriced printed copies of your novel with some really, you know, some really, you know, sad-looking cover art that would basically just kind of stack up in your garage, and that would be pretty much the end of it. Um, so at that point, self-publishing was very was it was, it was a dark time. It was definitely a dark time for the rebellion. Um, but in September of 2002, I saw an offer from iUniverse, which was uh, you pay $200 and you'll go ahead and get the setup fees and the formatting and everything like that. They'll get it all set. Plus, they'll upgrade it to hardcover. And so I went ahead and took the initiative because I wanted to see what would happen with this book. And in November of 2002, the book was finished and I got to um, sell some copies of it and everything to uh, different friends and family members. And it was a it was a decent launch. Like, there, you know, it was it was a fun little launch. Nothing much really, you know, came of it. Once the friends and family got their copies, that's when it pretty much died. And I even did another draft of the screenplay back in 2005 with a couple of additional ideas getting thrown out by, uh, by my friend Charlie Kessler. And I was able to incorporate those ideas and um, and I, and it seemed like I really had something. I wasn't sure what it was, but I knew I had something. And then in 2010, even better, um, I reached out to iUniverse again. At that point, again, there was still nothing really happening with it. But... Now that, you know, at this point, things were really taking off with the Excelsior manuscript and it looked like there was going to be a future for that as well. So I reached out to iUniverse and I said, you know, like, what do you have any sort of deals that are that's going that are going on right now? And they said, if you pay to um, if you pay, if you buy 25 copies of your book at 50 percent off, they'll upgrade it to an ebook." and i thought great that's a, a new market let's go for that and so i got my 25 copies a few days later and then i waited and i waited and i waited months passed still no ebook and then in january of 2011 i spoke with one of the members of a group that was functioning for a while called the indie book collective and they asked me what else do you have other than excelsior because excelsior had come out the ebook had come out and things were were moving with that and I said, Well, I have this other book from Parts Unknown, and I have it through iUniverse. And I was told, you gotta get your you gotta get that book back from them. You get the book back, you get your rights back, and you get to put out the book yourself. You get to put out the ebook at your own price. And I thought that would that's the best way to do it. And so I reached out to iUniverse and I said, Where are you with this ebook? They hadn't even started yet after all this time. And so I said, you know what, I'm gonna take back my rights. I'm going to go ahead and take it out of the catalog. I am I think I'm done. So they let me go ahead and just walk away from it. It wasn't selling, so it was not something that they felt worth holding on to. And when I got those rights back, I took a look through the 2002 version of this book, and I didn't like it anymore. Turns out that the, the technology was very much antiquated at this point. You're talking about when I wrote it from uh from March 2001 to July 2002 and technology changed a lot in 2011 when all of the when I was reading this again and so I was thinking back to some elements that I had in um that I had in the 2005 draft and seeing how can I play those elements a little bit better and so in Labor Day of 2011 after several months of adding one idea to another to this whole thing, I finally sat down, I finally started writing the new version of From Parts Unknown. And it was quite the odyssey. And it got to a point where I was, I was at the point where I was getting to the stopping point, the end point for the 2002 book, but I was only about three-fifths of the way through the story. So I decided I was going to make it a five-part serial and play it like the... Season premieres of G.I. Joe and Transformers that I always loved those good sprawling five-part stories that would that would bring in a whole lot of information and really kind of set the table for what was to come for that season. And so I went ahead and did that, and for several years, off and on, I was working on this story. I knew I had something, but I wasn't sure what. And then finally, after all this time and. Um, finally coming up with, uh, something really solid in, uh, I'm talking all the way up to 2019. That was when I finally had a story that I could be really, really proud of. And so in lieu of sending it out to another publisher in which I did, you know, like I went ahead and sent it off to, um, to a Loris publishing, the same ones, that have taken a chance on me for Excelsior and Ever Upward, and I promised to Aloris Publishing, greater glory is coming. I will make I will make sure that happens. Um, they wound up turning it down, but at the same time, I was fine with that. I felt there was something about this story that I felt needed to just kind of get out there, and so I took the self-publishing route. I set it up on both Amazon and Ingram Spark using the same ISBN, so that way um, anyone who is a bookstore owner can reach out and get their copies through Ingram and not have to buy them from Amazon, the company that wants to put them out of business. And so in 2019, I had my official launch of the completed five-part serial, all in one volume of From Parts Unknown. And that launch took place in... um, in September of 2019, at Barnes and Noble at the West County Mall, and I am just really, really proud of how the whole thing came about. Um, the book itself, as I say in the back text of the, of the book, it's, a, it's very simple: Out of work, out of insurance, out of options. All Stephen Barker wants is to provide a better life for his wife and child, and his only answer is to become a star in the last remaining sport in America, the Gladiatorial Combat League. But while Steven's intentions are noble, he has no idea that the GCL is becoming more and more corrupt behind the scenes. The current world champion, Kyle Flight, is forced to deal with constant rule changes proposed by the head booker known as Vornicai, including the use of weapons in the ring. But Vornikai is keeping his latest plan to usurp the championship a secret from everyone. And if it works, it will turn an ordinary man into a weapon to tear through the GCL ranks. All he needs is a test subject. Someone like Steven. So, for this week of Excelsior Journeys, you're going to hear Chapter 1 of From Parts Unknown. And I really hope you like what you hear. We're going to take a quick break because we are sponsored this all all this month mains playing cards has sponsored from parts unknown i'm really grateful to them for taking a chance on this and i really hope that all of you take a chance on their high quality limited edition playing cards again that's mains playing cards you're going to hear a little bit more about them and then we're going to jump right into from parts unknown we'll be right back This episode of Excelsior Journeys is brought to you by Maine's Playing Cards. This launch deck is limited to 2,500, so check them out today before they are gone. Maine's Playing Cards is proudly based out of St. Louis and was started in 2020 during some of the world's more challenging days. To the creators, Andrew and Greg, this company became something positive to hold on to. And one year later, Maine's Playing Cards is very grateful for all of the support that they've received from so many, and that they can call this creative outlet a job. You can check them out at mainsplayingcards.com. I will post a link in the show notes and be sure to get one of their limited launch decks. By George He's Got It presents From Parts Unknown, the complete five-part serial. Written and read for you by George Seroy. Dedication. I have witnessed so many historic moments in sports and sports entertainment, but none of them would have mattered to me if it weren't for my grandfather making me that wonderful three-letter word, a fan. George Henry Pete Saroy introduced me to wrestling with an autographed photo of Andre the Giant. He got me posters for the New York Giants to hang up in my room after Super Bowl XXI, and he gave me his Super Bowl XXV ticket stub. He made sure I owned a Yankee cap. We never got to experience the victories of our teams in the same room at the same time, but he started a tradition in my family that I can't wait to introduce to Scarlett. Thank you, Pepe. I miss you. Part 1 The Blunt Object Amendment. I don't see WWE needing to evolve to what UFC does because, quite frankly, sometimes the fights are long and boring, guys lying around, and sometimes the fights are fast and over in five seconds. I've always thought one of the things about us, if you look at us solely from a sports standpoint, is that we always give you a good show. We're never going to give you a crap game. I think if anybody needs to evolve, it's them. Give more of an entertainment standpoint. Paul Levesque, a.k.a. Triple H. Chapter One Is that Carrie? Stephen's eyes refused to look away from the wallet-sized picture of the stunning brunette taped to the inside of his red locker door. She wore a simple white tank top that emphasized her outstandingly fit body. She was flashing a smile so dazzling one would swear it had the power to cure diseases. In her arms was a boy, no older than six, gleefully waving at the camera with a big, toothy grin. That picture was the sole decoration, the large, broad-shouldered man allowed in his locker, the one small area of the wrestling gym he claimed for himself. Jimmy Park's question echoed throughout the otherwise empty locker room, and Stephen had yet to acknowledge it. He was too preoccupied with sliding on his blue jeans and gazing at the picture. Lost in the depths of his wife's striking blue eyes, which had a certain hypnotic quality to them that shone through even in the tiny photograph. Park slapped his right fingerless gloved hand on his friend's shoulder. Hey, Barker, you all right, man? Stephen's nose immediately wrinkled as he snapped out of his trance-like state. What the hell is that you're wearing? Park pointed at the bottle in his locker. GCL, reality. Stephen stifled a laugh as he grabbed his light blue button-down shirt from his locker. My God, they released their own cologne? What do they put in it, concentrated Kyle flight sweat? Park shut his locker door, blocking his treasure from any additional mockery. I like it, so do the ladies. You should see how they flock to me when I'm wearing it. They like it because it keeps away the mosquitoes. You're just jealous, that's all. Stephen nodded and rolled his eyes. Yeah, that's it. Jealous. Park looked over Stephen's shoulder and got a closer look at the picture. Is that Carrie? My God, she didn't even look this good at your wedding. Where the hell did you get this taken? Last week. Eight long years with you, and she still looks this good? You know, if she's ever looking for an affair. Before he could finish his sentence, Stephen gave him a quick punch in the gut. Park stepped back. I'll remember that when we're at the tryouts, Park taunted while rubbing his stomach. Good. That was the idea. Park walked back to his locker and grabbed his bag as Stephen opened his wallet. All the requirements were there. State ID, social security card, government assistance charge card with a valid date on it. No cash inside. He didn't need weird looks from anyone. "'What are you doing with that?' he had heard cash handlers being asked. As Stephen slipped his wallet into his pants, Park asked, "'You didn't tell Carrie about this whole thing, did you?' "'What do you mean?' Stephen asked, as he slid on his shirt and buttoned it up. "'Last time I was over for dinner, she had a shit fit because Tommy was watching a GCL show. "'Now here you are, trying out for the company. "'What's she going to say if you get accepted?' "'I'll let the contract do all the talking.' When she realizes how much money we'll be making, she should come around. And if she asks you what you've been doing all this time, you've been out of work for, what, three months now? She knows I've been looking. And hey, look at what I'm doing here. If I can get in, we can build up enough credit to live in Manhattan. And there's always a chance to try out for the other rosters. There's more than just the Eastern Division, you know. Steven winced. Ugh. And deal with all the registration forms and being put on the wait list to move to another state? No. I gotta do this here. Park slung his bag over his shoulder. Yeah, well, maybe you should at least do some of the talking. She sees GCL anywhere on that contract and it's confetti. You of all people ought to know that. I'll see you tomorrow, okay? Just don't let her find your tights if you want to keep your balls, Park laughed over his shoulder as he exited the locker room. Stephen was wearing his street clothes when he stepped into the main gym area. He felt a shiver creep along his spine as he looked around the interior. No matter how many times he had seen it, he always felt as though he were seeing the gym for the very first time. Located on Ninth Avenue in Midtown Manhattan and with a spray-painted exterior, any unsuspecting passerby would just continue along without so much as a second thought. The interior of the building, however, was a combination of museum and church. Sure, the black paint on the walls had started to peel over time, and the constant stench of sweat and blood permeated the room— But the wrestling ring in the center was kept in pristine condition. The ropes were taut, the mat always spotless, the apron covering the sides straightened, and the block-lettered logo for the Gladiatorial Combat League served as a constant reminder to anyone in the gym of what was the only sport in town. A spotlight focused its brilliant intensity down on the ring to provide the closest possible atmosphere for wrestlers. Around the upper walls of the gym were 14 different framed animated posters of various epic moments from wrestling history, looped to play over and over, in chronological order, eerily akin to a professional wrestling, mixed martial arts, Stations of the Cross. January 1948, Orville Brown wears the National Wrestling Alliance World Heavyweight Championship as its first-ever champion. April 1963, Buddy Rogers becomes the first-ever Worldwide Wrestling Federation champion. September 1981, Ric Flair defeats Dusty Rhodes to win his first NWA heavyweight championship. January 1984, Hulk Hogan defeats the Iron Sheik to win his first World Wrestling Federation championship. August 1994, Shane Douglas throws down the NWA heavyweight championship and declares himself the Extreme Championship Wrestling World Heavyweight Champion. February 1997, Mark Coleman wins the first ever Ultimate Fighting Championship heavyweight title. March 1998. Stone Cold Steve Austin defeats Shawn Michaels to win his first World Wrestling Federation championship. December 2001. Chris Jericho becomes the first undisputed champion, combining the title lineages of both the World Wrestling Federation and World Championship Wrestling. May 2007. Kurt Angle holds up the Total Nonstop Action World Heavyweight Championship, becoming the first champion of the title's lineage. August 2019. Chris Jericho becomes the inaugural All Elite Wrestling World Champion. October 2022. Johnny Cabrini stands victorious in the middle of the ring after winning the inaugural Battle Royale for Canada's Stampede Alberta Wrestling promotion, becoming the first champion. June 2041. Edward Flight becomes the Fighters, Gladiators, Warriors, North American champion, absorbing the SAW championship. February, 2052, the punch that changed it all. Togar punches Vern Dappy across the jaw and starts an actual fight during their championship match. August, 2053, Kyle Flight holds up the Gladiatorial Combat League World Championship. Stephen smiled as he took in the different moments of history and turned toward the ring to see a bearded, stocky gentleman running back and forth against the ropes. After the man bounced across the ropes for a third time, he launched himself and dropped an elbow on an imaginary opponent in the middle of the ring. The man in the ring was about 50 pounds heavier than he'd been when he'd taken that history-making punch from Togar, but Vern Dappy still appeared light on his feet as he leapt up and continued running across the ropes, bouncing off and executing a leg drop in the center. He had the same rough demeanor as he did during his peak years, with his long hair and big bushy beard giving a common man look that appealed to all demographics. Stephen lowered his back to the floor and leaned against the doorway to watch the show. He had caught Vern practicing his moves after his wrestling class before, and it always made him smile. Vern stood up and, oblivious to anyone watching, clenched his fist in front of his face as though he were grasping an imaginary microphone and began speaking to an imaginary crowd. I'm not a bitter man for what you did to me, Sotek. In fact, I'm damned happy that you did it. You see, I don't know what the hell kind of man you think I am, but the last thing in the world I hold is a grudge. But first, I'm going to hold your big moronic head as I squeeze the very life out of you. And after that, I'm going to reach inside and grab whatever alien thing is possessing you. Steven could no longer resist. And squeeze the very life out of it, too. Vern whipped around and gasped, startled out of his boots. Christ, even, don't do that. I remember that speech. The first Coliseum classic, right? Seems so long ago. I still don't know how Gary Blackman could afford putting up that special. Think it would get this far? Vern leaned against the ropes. It's amazing what one accidental punch can accomplish in this business. He'd made the air quote gesture when he said accidental and gave his jaw a rub. But it was a lot more of a sport back in the day. I'd say it's more of a sport now than it's ever been. You guys already knew who was winning and everything. And now that there are no run-ins or... Vern pointed a finger at Steven, his now thundering voice reverberating off the gym's walls. It was always a sport to me! Back then it required athleticism and instinctive ability to pull off these moves without hurting yourself or your opponent. Now all you need is a reason to hit someone. For what? Steven picked up his bag and shrugged his shoulders. For the good of the public? For love of the game? Vern rolled his eyes. For the good of the public, right. Well, yeah. The president said that since all the other sports imploded, a company like GCL was, was doing a public service, blah, blah, blah. I don't buy that line of happy horse shit for a second, and neither should you. Stephen. you're here because it's the only real high-paying job that's left. You're lucky they haven't found a way to automate the wrestlers yet. Vern stepped over the middle and lower ropes and walked down the metal stairs to stand on equal ground with a student. "'You think it's ever going to be like that?' Stephen asked. "'Nobody ever thought wrestling would be like what it is now. "'Look how that turned out,' his teacher responded. "'On your way home?' "'Soon. The evening news is starting up soon, and I want to see the top story. "'Then I got to pick up my assistance money.' "'Ah, yes, of course. "'You did make sure to notify the Assistance Bureau you were trying out for the GCL, right? "'They throw in an extra 20 credits per week?' "'Stephen nodded as Vern jogged to his office.' grabbed the black hooded sweatshirt and put it on before shutting off the office light. The teacher and student strode side by side to the exit, and Vern swept his fingers along a touchpad adjacent to the door in a downward motion. The lights dimmed until the room was pitch black, with the lone spotlight still hanging over the ring. I hope you've enjoyed chapter one of part one of From Parts Unknown. And if you have, I have a real special treat for you. All you have to do is go to the store at he'sgotit.com, select From Parts Unknown in the store to purchase a direct copy from me to be sent over to you, and use the coupon code GCL, and that will get you 20% off of From Parts Unknown. I hope you have a wonderful week, and for From Parts Unknown, and for my sponsor for this month, Maine's Playing Cards, this is George Soroy saying all of you, ever upward. And I will see you next week.